What's going on, everyone? It's Friday, May 20th. I'm Zach Crockett. I'm here with Rob Litterst and Juliet Bennett-Rila, and you're listening to The Hustle Daily Show. Today, we're talking co-working spaces. They've had a very rough couple years, but they're coming back, and they're coming back strong. We're going to dig into the factors driving that rebirth, and we're also going to touch on a weird flex from the Motion Picture Academy, which just made a move that could be really bad for streaming giants. But before we get into that, let me fill you in on a couple other things going on in business and tech. Tesla was removed from the S&P 500's ESG index for reasons including allegations of discrimination and failure to provide details on its carbon removal strategy. Elon Musk, in fitting fashion, responded by tweeting out, ESG is a scam. Zara announced it's going to start charging for returns for online orders. Shoppers will pay a fee of about two pounds, which will be taken out of their refund. Uniqlo, another fast fashion player, already charges for returns, and analysts think that more retailers are going to follow suit here. You might recall the name Melvin Capital. They were the hedge fund that took out a massive short position against GameStop last year and then lost billions of dollars when the meme stock shot up in price. Well, that firm just had another very rough year and now it's shutting its doors. Melvin's top dog, Gabe Plotkin, says he plans to liquidate the firm's assets after failing to give investors the returns they came to expect. And lastly, uh, a bit of hard-hitting news here. A two-year-old in Texas got a hold of his mom's cell phone and somehow managed to order 31 McDonald's hamburgers on Grubhub. It was reportedly an accident. The toddler was tossing around the phone and using it to look at his reflection. But the app was open, and $91 later, the delivery man came by. So lesson here to parents, don't leave your phones lying around. You never know when the hamburger is going to strike. And with that, let's move into co-working here. And I feel like any discussion about co-working spaces has to start with WeWork. They really were the industry darling for a long time, but recent years weren't too kind to them. Right, Rob? Yeah. So to your point, Zach, I think for better or worse, we all tend to associate co-working in general with WeWork since they were basically the poster child for the co-working trend. And the last couple of years have been really, really tough for them until recently. If you think back to 2019, I think it was August, they had their failed IPO attempt. And if you remember at that time, like people were looking into their documentation for the IPO and just basically like making fun of different slides in their investor deck yeah. and some of the things that they were saying. I mean, like Adam Newman just got absolutely skewered during this mm -hmm. time, rightfully so for a lot of things. But the company really lost a ton of steam, obviously didn't IPO then. It has IPO'd since, but the onset of the pandemic in 2020 also cut into its occupancy numbers. I think before the pandemic, it was at about 72% occupancy. In December of 2020, it was at 47% occupancy. So it had a huge impact on just co-working in general. And then of course, I believe earlier this year, Apple TV Plus released We Crashed, which is the miniseries that has Jared Leto as Adam Newman and Anne Hathaway as his wife, which has gotten great reviews and chronicles the company's downfall. Hmm. But like you said, co-working is coming back thanks to a few pretty big macro trends. All right. So what we've seen recently, though, is a reversal of those trends. WeWork seems to be making kind of a miraculous recovery thanks to some macro trends, right? Yeah. So there's a combination of factors that are leading to a resurgence in co-working and bode really well for WeWork. Mm -hmm. So first of all, if you think about the proliferation of COVID vaccines, 
the office has been made to feel a lot safer for workers that had otherwise been working remotely. Mm -hmm. Many workers actually want to get back to the office and their companies are trying to fulfill hybrid work environments while still offering some flexibility for them. Sure. And then over the last few months, obviously the tech stocks and the market in general have been getting crushed, which has led to a really uncertain environment for tech startups who are looking for more short-term leases and less kind of long-term commitments to an office space, right? So they're much more interested in these kind of flexible arrangements. Hmm. So what do the numbers look like for WeWork now? So in Q1 2022, their occupancy jumped up to 67%. It's up from 47% in December 2020 and not too far from where it was before the pandemic, which is 72%. Hmm. The company reported 501,000 physical memberships last quarter, which is up 37% year over year. And they've also increased demand for their new all access plan, which I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but it's actually pretty cool. You can kind of as an independent person or I believe through your company essentially subscribe to WeWork all access. It's basically like a gym membership, like you pay a monthly fee and you get access to hundreds of WeWork locations. So instead Mm -hmm. of having like a set WeWork office that you go to, you can essentially go to any WeWork and work there. Uh, Interesting. So if I lived in San Francisco and I went on a trip to Chicago or something, I I could just pop into a WeWork maybe and work there. Exactly. It'd almost be like having an Equinox membership or something like that, which Juliet, I know, you know a thing or two <laughs> That's about. That's my co-working hack. <laughs> exactly. No co-working space, only Equinox. I love that. No way. You file your stories from an Equinox? No, uh, not all of them. <laughs> See, I used to have an all-access WeWork plan through a company that I worked for, which was great because they were located in Playa Vista and it took me hours to get there. But then they were like, you can just use our WeWork thing and you can go to any WeWork. So I went to the WeWork in Hollywood, which was across from an Equinox. And so I would work out at Equinox and then go to the WeWork. But after the pandemic, it occurred to me that I don't need the WeWork. I only need the Equinox because the Equinox has internet and they all have like these little patios that you can sit and do a little work on. And it's like the same price. So if you're a person who does not need an office for eight hours a day, but you do sometimes need to go to another part of town and you're like me and you don't drive and it's going to take you two hours to get back on the bus, you can just make the Equinox your co-working space. And that is my <laughs> ultimate co-working hack. Wow. All right. Take notes, everyone. (laughs) I love that. That's amazing. Actually, if we're talking about like cool co-working spaces and nice, clean environments, I'm not really sure it gets better than Equinox. I feel like it probably smells like eucalyptus or something like that everywhere. Yeah. Really clean. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like you're not the only one either. Like I've walked by Equinoxes before and just seen like a ton of people working on laptops. Like it's a coffee shop or something. They're onto your hack, Juliet. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. It's catching on. Don't everybody join Equinox now because... I like it the way that it is. And you're just all going to take up the squat rack. (laughs) So this isn't just uh, WeWork, obviously. There are a bunch of other co-working spaces. And interestingly, there seems to be kind of a rise in in niche co-working spaces. There are different spaces that fill all kinds of needs. Yeah, totally. And actually, like WeWork is acquiring some of them. I believe they made an acquisition earlier this year for a smaller co-working company, but there are some other niche co-working providers that are more kind of like locally based and have less locations and they're more kind of co-working startups, right? Like they, they don't necessarily have the capital behind them that WeWork has. And one thing that's become a lot more favorable for them from a business perspective is their landlords are becoming more open to profit sharing agreements. So traditionally they would just pay to lease the building and keep all of their profits. These co-working companies now landlords are open to charging a lower monthly fee for these tenants and then kind of getting in on the profits on the back end, which is opening the doors to 
some of these companies to kind of continue operating there when in the past, I think some of these leases and the monthly payments that they would have to pay would essentially kind of put them out of business if they didn't hit a certain occupancy level. Now, you know, obviously with more people working remote, this is appealing, but co-working spaces still have their fair share of problems. Yeah. So a study by Pew found that 59% of workers that can do their job remotely want to stay remote. So I think like one kind of bigger trend that it's it's worth talking about here is like how many people do want to go back to the office? Like I, I know I work fully remote. I think all three of us work fully remote. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think there are going to be a lot of people that are like, you know, I'm pretty happy just working from home. We mentioned there are some people that are excited to get back into an office environment. But if you're working remotely and you're not going to see coworkers anyway, I think in some ways it kind of almost feels pointless to, to have something mm-hmm. like that because why not just keep working from home if you like it? The other part of it is... Co-working spaces are kind of at risk for security issues. One example is WeWork, which in 2019 was found to have weak Wi-Fi security, which ultimately ended up exposing sensitive data on its network. And you can imagine with you know multiple companies being housed under one roof and kind of within the confines mm. of these WeWorks, you can imagine there's, there's probably some vulnerabilities there. Interesting point, yeah. There's gonna be a lot more VPNs, I bet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, one more story we want to touch on here. The Motion Picture Academy just updated its rules for the 2023 Oscars. And it's saying that only movies that play in theaters are going to be eligible for the Academy Awards. And just a little background here. This is actually the way things have always been. But the last two years with, you know, all the theater closures, they modified the rules so that the streamers were eligible too. So this announcement is really just a return to the norm. But it's still kind of a big slap in the face to the streaming giants, Netflix, Apple, Amazon, Hulu. You know, they're presumably no longer going to be eligible for the Academy Awards moving forward. Before we get into this, does anyone know what the MPAA actually does? Like, what role does it play in the Oscars? Uh, It basically oversees the whole thing. So its members include various people who work in film. They're the ones who decide and vote on the winners. Um, The Academy also determines the award categories, so cinematography, sound, etc., and the rules for each. So, for example, in addition to this, it's not really a new rule, but the return to theater rule, Another one is that in the music category, now no more than three songs from any single film can be submitted to win Best Original Song. Hmm. So they basically do stuff like that, at least as far as when it comes to the awards. All right. So so they're the big dogs in charge of delegating the awards. Mm-hmm. And the reason this ruling really sucks for streamers is I feel like in, in recent years, they really proved that they're in the same ballpark as traditional studios. I think they've come out with a lot of stuff and even gotten some recognition for it. I mean, Apple took home a Best Picture for the Oscar for CODA this year, right? Right. Yeah. Did either of you guys see CODA? Mm-mm. I didn't, no. It was good. It's funny because like, I feel like there's kind of a stigma of like the Best Picture winners. I just think of like much more kind of like artsy and kind of off the beaten path films. CODA was just like a very solid movie, I thought. I'd recommend mm-hmm. it. There is an argument to be made that the Academy is kind of fighting against progress here. I mean, the reality is that people watch streaming now. You know, theater attendance has been down for a long time, even before the pandemic. Unfortunately, Um, streaming subs are way up in the past five years, although they've curtailed a little bit in the last few months. And these streaming platforms have some of the biggest budgets in the business to create new films with. I'm just wondering how this decision might bode for the future of the Oscars in general. So I think it's possible that we might see some of the streamers release their movies in theaters 
And we've talked about this before, like, can Netflix have its own theater? For a long time, the answer was no. Um, The Paramount Decrees was this thing that happened back in the 1940s, which was basically the studios can't have their own movie theaters because then they'd kind of be like, well, this theater can only play my movies or you can't play. So imagine if like Disney could basically bully movie theaters. But now in 2020, they decided to sunset the Paramount Decrees. So it is possible that a streamer like Amazon or Apple or Netflix Hmm. could make a theater. So it is possible that a streamer like Netflix or Apple or Amazon could start opening their own theaters. That is a possibility. Hmm. That's funny you say that, Julia, because I feel like there was a lot of speculation on Reddit last year about Amazon buying AMC theaters and and just like basically right, right. slotting all their stuff into AMCs. And then, you know, same thesis that people had for Whole Foods, they can kind of use them for storage, for packages and all that sort of stuff if there's any extra room. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this decree, I guess, also made me curious. Like, couldn't the streaming giants just debut their movies on a small run in theaters? And couldn't that presumably, like, include them in in this category? I'm not really sure. And I'm also not sure why they don't. Coda was playing at a small independent movie house that I was at the day of the Oscars. I was out of town and I found this little movie theater and I went to go see this indie horror movie and they were screening the Oscars in another room. And I remember them saying that Coda was playing so Hmm. they do screen elsewhere yeah i just wonder if that could be kind of a a workaround for these streaming giants just to maybe roll out their movie in independent theaters for a low cost so that they're eligible for the awards it's not like all of their movies would be the kind of movies that would win an award like you have other types of movie awards where it doesn't matter if you're a streamer you can still win A great example for all of you who know that I only watch trash movies. Fangoria (laughs) is the horror awards. If you're on Shudder, you can win a horror award movie. Does not matter. If you're on Netflix, you're probably not going to stream a movie like The Babysitter about a murderer babysitter. (laughs) and be like, this is going to win an Oscar. I better get this in theaters. Like, you may have to pick and choose which of your movies you think is Oscar material. (laughs) Fair point. Yeah, very true. I think that's a good point, though, Zach. Like, I could totally see a lot of the streamers releasing some of their kind of Oscar-baity movies just in, like, a Mm bi-coastal release with, like, a few theaters in New York and a few theaters in Los Angeles and just calling it a day and then kind of going straight to the streaming platform. Did either of you guys watch the Oscars this year? No. No, I was watching uh, an indie movie about a witch (laughs) in the next stream over. (laughs) There you go. Exactly. And I think that illustrates, like, a very good point. So I'm looking at this chart right now for the Oscars viewership. Yeah. And I think it's gone from like 41 million people in 2010 to 9 million people last year. I'm not totally sure how many people watched it this year, but like it's like not really relevant in the culture anymore compared to what it once was. That's astonishing. 9 million viewers in 2020. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, yeah. like random NBA playoff games, I think, get that <laughs> much viewership. That, it's mm-hmm. like that, that's wild. Yeah, that is really, really low. I mean, this used to be like a marquee event that, you know, you'd walk by bars in the street and everyone would be showing the Oscars on TV, you know? Right. Like, if you think back to like the 70s, which people call like the golden age of cinema, right? And the golden age of movies, you had Francis Ford Coppola, Scorsese started then, I think Lucas started then, Spielberg started then. That was kind of like the glory years of movies. And that went into the eighties and nineties when movies were like so important to the cultural conversation. I feel like that kind of extended into the two thousands or aughts or whatever you call them. But these days, like, I just don't think movies really have too much of a cultural impact. Like Mm -mm. the only movies doing business are like the Marvel movies, which I have not seen a Marvel movie in like, 
10 years. I think I saw one of the Ironmans, but I just don't really have any interest in those. And it's really TV like dominates the conversation It is mm. miniseries and whatever right. showing on HBO. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of anyone talking about a movie the way that people talked about Game of Thrones for a decade. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally true. Right. Squid Game and The Queen's Gambit, like mm-hmm. even those like little miniseries, they just they take over the conversation. And, and those yeah. are eligible for Emmys, regardless of whether they're on regular TV or streaming TV. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Really? So the Emmys don't have a similar clause. They don't exclude the streaming shows in their awards. Right. So the TV Academy is, you know, the same as the Motion Picture Academy. Its mm-hmm. members are TV people. And yeah, you can win an Emmy whether you're on Netflix or whether you're on regular TV, the TV in your house that you turn on that's not connected to your internet, whatever mm-hmm. people are calling that these days. What is interesting, though, is that is a big part of like the union discussion, because I have friends who work in, say, hair and makeup, and they want to get credits to be part of the union. Well, working on an Amazon show for five years isn't real TV. So my friend was just telling me she has to go like work on an NBC show. Mm-hmm. No way. And there's like all these discrepancies between like how they get treated. So that's where like I think the real discrepancy is. Hmm. So streaming work doesn't qualify as union work? That's wild. Apparently to get like, you know, those credits you need to join a union apparently doesn't count. Wow. So interesting. It's fascinating how those two academies have gone in different directions with who they're including in the awards. Right. It makes me wonder if part of the academy's decision is just kind of to protect movie theaters that have really been ailing and Mm -hmm. who who they've had longstanding relationships with. Theaters have done a lot for production houses over the decades totally i do feel like there's still kind of like an ego factor for the film industry in general like i think there's a disconnect between the cultural impact that people in movies think they have versus the cultural impact that they actually have like i I think they still think that they're kind of like on the top of the world and you know kind of like creating the conversation in the culture which just like isn't really the case anymore sure Mm mm-hmm All right, well, that's going to do it for us today. If you liked what you heard, we've got a lot more tech and business coverage over at thehustle.co. Go check it out. Our editors, Robert Hartwig, and shout out to our executive producer, Darren Clark, guy behind the scenes. Thanks for tuning in to The Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network, and we will see you all next week. Bye.